For our series of DDC's competition talks with leading experts, we have today Professor Colleen Cunningham and Professor Florian Ederer. Colleen is an assistant professor of strategy and entrepreneurship at London Business School, and Florian is an associate professor of economics at the Yale School of Management. This is actually a very special Comcast, as our guests are co-authors together with Song Ma of the research paper Killer Acquisitions, which is the winner of this year's edition of the ADC Competition Policy Award. Uh, Colleen and Florian, congratulations for your excellent paper and for the award, and thank you very much for your availability for this chat in the form of a Comcast. Now, this is the first Comcast in which we have two guests, so I believe this will make up for a more lively discussion. Your paper on killer acquisitions has taken a center stage for the past couple of years in the competition community, and this is so because your paper gives the first empirical account that I know of, of a theory of harm whereby incumbents acquire innovative entrepreneurs as a strategic tool to preempt competition. Now, may I invite you, Colleen and Florian, to give us a summary of how your paper addresses killer acquisitions, both theoretically and empirically, and what are your main findings? Well, thank you very much uh, for having us as part of the podcast. It's a real honor and pleasure to be here to talk about our paper. I will speak a little bit first about the theoretical framework that we imply in our paper, and then Colleen will speak a little bit more to the empirical results that we have. So what we do in this paper on the theory side is that we model acquisitions that occur when the innovative target firm's project is still under development. And so therefore there's further development that's necessary and costly and the ultimate project success is uncertain. We draw on a rich literature, starting with Kenneth Arrow, that shows that an incumbent acquirer has weaker incentives to continue development than an entrepreneur whenever the new project overlaps with or substitutes for a product or project in the incumbent acquirer's portfolio. For those of you who know this, this is a very general well-known result, is essentially is the so-called replacement effect, where the innovation that is being developed replaces some of the existing profits of the acquirer. Now, we show that this incentive to innovate can be so strong that an incumbent firm may actually acquire an innovative startup simply to shut down the startup's projects and thereby stem the gale of creative destruction of new inventions. So it is directly related to another classic example in, in, the, in the literature on innovation by Schumpeter. Now, importantly, some degree of this acquire target overlap is necessary for the killer acquisition motive to exist. However, it is also true that both existing and future competition reduce the difference in project development decisions between acquirers and entrepreneurs, and thereby diminish the incentive for killer acquisitions. In other words, what we show is that this killer acquisition incentive is particularly large whenever you have low existing competition or when the arrival of future competition is still a long ways away. And then and finally, we show that this killer acquisition motive continues to exist even when the entrepreneur's new project is qualitatively superior to the incumbent's existing projects or products, and even when incumbents benefit from development synergies relative to the entrepreneur, and even when they are multiple and potentially asymmetric acquirers. So it is a very robust finding theoretically that applies to a whole host of industries and really highlights that killer acquisitions are not just a theoretical oddity, but really seem to be occurring, at least suggested by the theory, in many situations. 
So I can pick it up here and talk a bit about the specific empirical test. So, you know, as Florian set up, basically we tried to pull together a theoretical model that would suggest some conditions under which we expect theoretical or we expect killer acquisitions to occur, right? And but it's hard because there's no real smoking gun and we're trying to provide systematic evidence of these. So how do we go about doing it? We tested it in the pharmaceutical industry. Why this is a good space for us is because we can follow projects over time and we can see development at the project level. We can also follow projects when they get acquired. So what we're looking for here is do projects that are acquired by acquirers who have closely overlapping projects, are they less likely to be developed after they're acquired? Is this in particular true when there's low existing competition in that space? So when the motive to shut down and kill that target is, is highest? And then we also look at the patent length because in pharma patents are key right to competition and once a patent expires that's when generic entrants can come in so we also want to say like well we also expect this motive to be especially strong when the uh, incumbent's patent has a long patent uh, has, a, has a long life in front of it so we do those tests and we find consistent with our predictions that drugs that are acquired by overlapping incumbents are much more likely to to be shut down, to not be developed further, especially when there's low competition, existing competition, and especially when the patent life is particularly long. So we find evidence consistent with killer acquisitions, and then we do a bunch of stuff in the paper to try and eliminate alternative explanations, such as optimal product selection acquisitions, things like aqua hires or technology redeployment, or, you know, things like are they buying bad projects at a, you know, on a fire sale? So we eliminate a bunch of alternative explanations. And what we're left with is evidence consistent with the existence of, of killer acquisitions and a sort of a prevalence rate of about five to 7% of all acquisitions in the pharmaceutical industry over our time period. Oh, very interesting. And this has actually, all those findings have taken your paper to the spotlight in the competition community debate regarding the digital economy. And we know that digital giants such as Google and Facebook, amongst others, have been acquiring startups for quite a long time at a very frequent rate. Now, your paper investigates killer acquisitions in the pharmaceutical industry, as you just explained. But what do you think are the conclusions that can be extracted from this research to other areas and set sectors, namely the digital economy? Sure, so maybe I'll start and then I'll, I'll get Florian to jump in. So, you know, one of the reasons, as I suggest, that we focus on pharma is because we can see overlap. We can see that a drug that's under development is going to be potentially competing with an incumbent's drug because it's targeting the same disease and because it's uh, using the same mechanism of action. So an antihypertensive that's a calcium channel blocker, we know those things are going to come to be competing with one another. And we can also see a lot of about the existing competition in that space. So all of the elements that help that come from the theory that in order to test for killer acquisitions, we can see in pharma, right? However, and so we use pharma to test for it. However, is there overlap in other industries? Yes, of course. Is there, you know, varying competition in other industries? Yes, of course. So the fundamental theoretical underpinnings of it exist in other spaces. Maybe I'll pass it to you, Florian, to continue. Yeah, I think and that that sets the stage basically perfectly also for thinking about digital acquisitions. So is it the case that there are large profit streams to be protected? Absolutely. And we know this is one of those situations where we do not necessarily have monopolies, but we certainly have incumbents with significant market power. We have incumbents that have also large financially deep pockets 
uh, that can carry out these acquisitions and moreover can carry out these acquisitions often quite outside the view of antitrust scrutiny. Now, antitrust scrutiny is is certainly something that is now very, very high. But if we go back to where acquisition certainly occurred in 10 years ago in the digital space, the degree of scrutiny certainly was not as high as it is today. Did those types of acquisitions, these kill acquisitions, occur then in the tech space? Absolutely. And you know, it is now luckily still the case that we can maybe look back at these acquisitions and have those acquisitions inform us how we should treat acquisitions going forward. Now, what does this mean in terms of tools? I think uh, what our paper particularly highlights is another piece of empirical analysis that we didn't have time to summarize right at the beginning. One of the things that we particularly stress is that in the pharmaceutical space, there's quite a bit of evidence that these killer acquisitions occur just below reporting thresholds for acquisition. That is in the United States, if you carry out an acquisition, you usually have to report it to the antitrust agencies, the DOJ or the FTC unless this acquisition falls below a notification threshold because the assets or the sales of the acquired company are relatively small or because the deal size, that is how much you paid for the target, is relatively small. Now, we find evidence that these types of acquisitions, these killer acquisitions, tend to occur just below the reporting thresholds. That is, they're not immediately visible to the antitrust agencies. So our paper is by no means an indictment of failure of antitrust, but actually just highlights that we must give antitrust authorities all the necessary information to actually investigate acquisitions that potentially have anti-competitive effects later on. Indeed, Florian, and I think it's quite interesting that result that finding in your paper because it's it's clear-cut evidence of an intent to escape scrutiny. So you've discussed on how we can look back at, at all these acquisitions and try to figure out, you know, which ones were meant to kill innovation and which weren't, but in a different approach and citing the recent report from the, the U.S. House Judiciary Committee Subcommittee on Antitrust Commercial an administrative law that actually cites your paper. And this report has a number of recommendations to deal with the problem of potential under enforcement uh, regarding killer acquisitions in the digital era. And one of the recommendations is to shift presumptions for future acquisitions by the dominant platforms and requiring notification for all acquisitions by the dominant platform. So given your findings, what are your views on this shifting of presumptions as a way to avoid firms circumventing competition law? So there's two parts of this, I think, here. And I have, Colleen surely does as well, have nuanced views on this. Shifting the presumption of the burden is something that I'm somewhat less comfortable with, sort of like showing Usually you have the antitrust authority has to show that there is anti-competitive harm of an acquisition rather than presuming that there is anti-competitive harm. Should we shift that burden? I think that is probably a larger question that we should probably give more thought to and that probably requires more analysis than we provide in our paper. The second part of the question of 
Should we give antitrust authorities more information? Should we require companies to disclose this information of which companies they acquire? There, I have no nuance to you. I have a very clear cut view, and the answer is we should absolutely make that more mandatory and make it very, very clear to companies that they must disclose any type of acquisition they conduct, even when such acquisitions are relatively small. Now, of course, that imposes now an additional burden on antitrust agencies because they have to look at all these different acquisitions. And there, my usual plea is that we must do more. We must do, give more resources to antitrust agencies, hire more people, give them all the information, but also give them all the manpower to investigate those acquisitions. It's all very well and good to see disclosure of thousands of acquisitions, but then not have the resources to investigate them. If you look particularly at the US, you know, the appropriations that have gone to antitrust agencies have been flat and even have declined. How can we really do antitrust if we're not giving antitrust agencies all the resources that they need to deal with increased merger and acquisition activity? Now, picking on that point that you just made and on tools and means for competition agencies to be even more effective in merger control, in particular regarding killer acquisitions, what lessons do you think you can draw from your research that you can give to competition agencies on how to disentangle acquisitions of innovative startups that actually allow the pooling of resources and may foster innovation from those that were designed to kill competition? I can start on that. I think what our paper really highlights is the two bases of comparison, two drive, two main drivers that where you know like the killing motive increases. One is overlap. You know, clearly this is a hard thing to pin down. We do it in pharma because it's easy for us to say, you know, a, a potential drug is going to come to compete with another one because we have information about that. But trying to figure out is this innovative product service going to come to compete with that of the incumbent firm? Is it going to be a potential substitute? So that's one dimension to really think hard about. And then the other is, well, what's the current state of competition and expected competition in that space? So it's not just, is there another player in that space right now, but how big basically is the is the market, the size of the market power, the size of the monopoly, whatever, that is under threat from this potential entrant? Because one doesn't want to shut down all avenues of acquisition exit for entrepreneurs, but at the same time, you know, these dimensions help us understand, well, how, is this a potential killer acquisition or not? Is this something that we should scrutinize in great detail or not? And should we have other remedies that we then apply to that particular type of acquisition. So is overlap high? And, you know, what is the loss that the incumbent expects to get if they don't acquire this company? It's very interesting. I think that that's really great points that, that are being raised here. So to some extent, you know, what our research highlights is that antitrust agencies have to do a little bit of a job of forecasting the future, mm -hmm. sort of understanding what is the counterfactual, what can really, is there going to be su uh, sufficient competition? Is there going to be additional competition from other sources? Or is it truly critical to have this particular acquisition not be go through and not be allowed because otherwise we won't see another competitor. I think another important part is this antitrust agencies, I think, sometimes get criticized for not having done enough on big tech 10 years ago. And I think that is uh, actually quite unfair to antitrust agencies. It was very, very hard to predict 10 years ago where competition was going to end up. 
Okay, we had just gone through maybe you know people thought MySpace was going to be super dominant again, and certainly it was not dominant at all. But lots and lots of people predicted Facebook to be not dominant at all 10 years ago, and they're still pretty damn dominant right now. So one thing that I would urge in terms of additional tools available to antitrust agencies is to allow history to be a good teacher. Now, it was very, very hard in 2010 to predict what this is, was going to be, but now we can look back and see, were these acquisitions truly thwarting innovation? What happened to these acquisitions? Let's look at all the past acquisitions of Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, but also outside of the tech space. Let's look at many of these acquisitions that have occurred in the past. What has happened to them? Has there been sufficient amount of innovation? Can we maybe say even there would have been more innovation if those entities that were acquired stayed independent? So doing more retrospective merger analysis, I think is also would also be quite informative for policy going forward. But of course, it's very hard to do retrospective merger analysis because we're dealing with tons and tons of current mergers and acquisitions. So imposing even more of a burden on antitrust agencies, not just to deal with current developments in the acquisition space, but also dealing with the stuff that has happened in the past. But that's where Empirical I.O. can kick in and provide some important insights, such as what you do here for the pharma industry. I think you mentioned very important topics. And uh, for example, Colleen's point on overlapping, I think there's already one proposal that once you have overlapping projects in an acquisition, you know, somehow you can start presuming uh, harm from that from that merger. And picking up on Florian's points, let me bring bring us to the last point of this Comcast. You were speaking about the challenges of predicting the future, which is something that antitrust agencies and competition agencies are used to deal with these challenges, but they can be quite impressive in the digital economy. And one of the, the proposals that have been put forward to deal with this dilemma in the digital economy, in particular in the Furman report, is moving from a balance of probabilities, a test to assess mergers under a balance of uh, probabilities test, to a balance of harms. You would be weighting in this test the harm that these mergers can bring about in terms of competition and consumer welfare. Now, that brings me then to the point in what are your empirical findings or uh, what can you share with us as to the potential welfare impact of these killer acquisitions? Also because you mentioned earlier, Florian, that even when the products are superior, they get killed off following or shut down after the acquisition. So what can we expect in terms of welfare impact? Yeah, I think that is a great question. I'm very, very supportive of this proposal. Let me just begin with this of the Furman report, not just to consider probability of harm. Any economist, and you know, Colleen and I are certainly no exception, would tell you that we shouldn't just consider the probability of harm because different types of acquisitions have different degrees or amounts of harm, not just whether there is a higher or lower probability of such harm occurring. Now, what can our paper say about welfare harm? Our paper specifically, even though it studies such a narrow industry in pharmaceuticals, it has to be actually somewhat silent on welfare implications. Okay, and that's because we as uh, economics researchers have to be very, very careful and just say, here's what the data tells us. If we narrowly look at the exposed effect of acquisitions of innovation, then it is certainly true that killer acquisitions reduce consumer welfare. Why? Because you eliminate a competitor, eliminating a competitor reduces competitive pressure, okay, and that usually raises prices. 
It also reduces variety. And as you have hinted, Anna, it also may even reduce quality if the potential entrant has a superior product. Now, of course, there are other things that killer acquisitions do, okay? and Colleen can speak to some of them. One of them is that you have ex-ante incentive effects, namely the fact that you can now be acquired as an entrepreneur in a killer acquisition may spur you to come up with more innovation in the first place. So in some ways, actually sometimes think that our description or that our first use of this term of the fact that we have coined killer acquisition as a term is a little bit of a misnomer because really the entrepreneur in killer acquisition is very happy to be killed because the entrepreneur gets compensated. Some people have even suggested to us that this is some form of voluntary suicide here, <laughs> where the entrepreneur is very happy to be acquired and the project to be killed because the entrepreneur gets compensated here for this. But of course, consumers potentially uh, lose out on this. Now, Colleen, I can probably speak to some other welfare implications yeah. of this, and so I'll let her do some Yeah, sure. So, so yeah, so I think we'd like to be able to make a clear welfare prediction, but, you know, we're, our hands are a bit tied. We can't, or we're unwilling to, to make the assumptions necessary to do so. I think the main pushbacks that we get that it, against just the sort of ex post harm is, is the idea that, well, you know, we know in innovation and in entrepreneurship that being being acquired as an outcome is a strong motive for a lot of entrepreneurs entering into this space. We know there's the potential for gains from trade and you know, a, a small startup, a small pharmaceutical startup that's built by scientists can then license or sell their ideas to a big pharmaceutical company and they can develop that. And that's like the, the good thing, right? The good potential outcome of markets for technology of there being the potential for a firm being acquired. So we don't want to push that down. The interesting part of that is to say, well, does killer acquisitions in particular provide an incentive for firms starting up the or let's let's just say like the potential of killer acquisitions and sure maybe it does because as For Florian says well yeah you get 30 40 50 million dollars for your idea what do you care if it <laughs> gets shut down in the future you know so there may be some slight incentive there the question then to ask is well what is this incentive for innovation that's being brought by the potential of having a killer acquisition type exit what types of innovations are are being incentivized through this and one would say well probably ones that are quite similar given the overlap measure to existing products and so is this really the right way to incentivize innovative activity so i think that that's one you know that's the sort of counterforce to this one pushback on on welfare implications that's a, an important trade-off indeed. Okay, so I think those were very insightful remarks. Great paper. Uh, it was a pleasure for me to have this uh, Comcast with you. And thank you very much. Thank you very much, Anna. Yeah, thanks very much, Anna.